You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. What I've found is more effective is to understand why our brain is working in the way it is and why people are reacting in the ways that they are. And once you understand that foundation, it becomes so much more easy to interact with people on a different, more human level. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it's amazing to see you here where you are reminded to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. Okay, so today, who this conversation? Oh, this conversation. <laughs> I absolutely loved this interview. I was very fortunate to be able to bring Eric Bailey on to have a conversation with me today about the connection between brain science and communication, relationship building. We also ended up digging into how it intersects with empathy. Like, oh my God, it was such a good conversation. And the thing that I think was so so great was that there were some really amazing concrete examples and things that you could possibly do, but also the acknowledgement that this is, this is an ongoing process. You know, this is uh, uh, about learning. This is about each day being open to what's possible. And the fact that, you know, one of the things that Eric said that really stood out was the fact that the only thing that you can learn is something you don't already know. And really going there, Y'all know that like, that's my happy place. (laughs) That for me is everything. And so I want you to be able to hear a little bit more of everything that we went into. And before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about who Eric is. Honored as Diversity Leader of the Year, Eric is the creator of the Principles of Human Understanding, a leadership and communication methodology based in brain science and psychology. Eric's unique style blends fact and emotion and finds ways to appeal to the analytical thinkers, the emotional feelers, and everyone in between. Eric has a unique ability to communicate seemingly complex concepts in practical, easy-to-comprehend ways, aiding in self-awareness and knowledge retention. 
As an honoree of the prestigious 40 Under 40 Award, Eric has been featured on CNN, Wall Street Journal, Fox Soul, Huffington Post, Forbes, and the Consciously Unbiased Podcast, and has helped leaders and teams across the world see common problems from new and different perspectives. Eric works with Google Incorporated, the U.S. Air Force, Los Angeles County, the city of St. Louis, Missouri, Phoenix Police Department, and many more. Eric also runs a YouTube series of two-minute executive lessons called The Walking Meeting, which I think is such a cool idea. You'll have the link in the article. Uh, Eric also has a master's degree in leadership and organizational psychology from St. Louis University and is a lifetime learner of human and organizational behavior. When not working or researching, you can find Eric and his wife, Jamie, racing on their road bikes, being cheered on by their three children. I also need to remind y'all how much I love when people are able to be human. And when I find more and more people having their bios, including a piece about them that goes beyond their credibility markers and their education, that just kind of warms my heart because we are human. And the work that we're doing is based in our humanity. And so the conversation that I had today with Eric Bailey is just a great example of where humanity And the work that we do in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space can intersect and how we can do more and more of being empathetic and understanding each other just a little bit better. So without further ado, let's get into it. So hello, Eric. Welcome to Pause on the Play. How are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to have this conversation because when Indy and I had spoken to you a little while back, like sometimes you get on a call and you're like, yeah, this was good. And like the minute you started talking, I was like, yes, he gets it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm actually really, really excited to kind of dig into this. And one of the places that um, I really want to go, because number one, like you're bigger than any one topic. And I always think it's important to lay that out because so many of us, because we are often quoted or mm-hmm. talking about one particular thing, we can kind of get in this place where people are like, oh, this is what you talk about. And it's like, actually, I talk about a number of things just because right. they're related. There's mm-hmm. more to it than that. But one of the things that definitely stood out was that you were going into how brain science really is a part of something that you call holy shift and Mm -hmm. going into where brain science can be utilized to change the conversation and the dynamics around race, diversity, empathy, and healing. And for me, I was just like, yeah, that all, all of that, (laughs) like, can I just, all of those things. And so I would love for you to start off by really laying a little bit of groundwork of uh, your perspective of what brain science is. No, that's a great question because brain science isn't actually a science. Uh, it's it's really a collection of many different types of sciences uh, that are related to the brain. So psychology, neuroscience, linguistics, anthropology, and all of that. And so when you think about kind of collective brain science and what I tend to focus on is all the different things that impact the way in which we see the world, experience the world and move through the world. And so when we think about how that impacts uh, the world we're living in, I mean, every single time you talk with somebody or you're listening to somebody or you're communicating with somebody, there's, there's really interesting brain science principles that can help 
predict what's going to happen or help understand why that person reacted in the way you didn't want them to react or you didn't expect them to. And that's what's really fascinating to me is understanding the ways in which our brains work so that we can understand the world around us better. And see, this is where I feel like there's so much more talk around how to make your brain do what you want it to do, Mm. as opposed to can we acknowledge what it is actually doing? Right. And, and that's, and that's the thing. I mean, we, we have this natural idea that we're in control of everything. Uh, mm-hmm. a very erroneous idea, especially if you look at the last couple of years, we're not in control of anything. Um, but, but we always want to see if we, oh, if we can figure out, we can control, we can adjust our brain and adjust our thinking, which is a possible thing to do. Like we can adjust our thinking, but what I've found is more effective is to understand why our brain is working in the way it is. Uh, and why people are reacting in the ways that they are. And once you understand that foundation, it becomes so much more easy to con- to interact with people a- a- on a different, more human level. And so, of course, I have to ask what feels like an obvious question to me, which is everything you said makes sense. And I don't know that I would have ever thought, let me dig into brain science to figure <laughs> out what's happening here. So I have to ask, where where did you have that moment where you could kind of see the correlation. You could clearly kind of understand like, wait, even if I don't fully understand all the pieces of what's happening here, I can tell that there is something here that's linking Mm -hmm. brain science to this much larger concept. Because I think all of us perceive things in our own way, but you're absolutely, you know, kind of sharing something that, for a lot of us, it's like, I would never have thought that. And yet the minute you give it to me, it's like, oh, well, why didn't I think about this before? Right. And and so it actually comes from, it's, it's a, a much longer story going through my childhood of, of how I was always the one who would go up to two friends arguing and say, hey, I see their point. Can you see it? Oh, I see their point also. Can you see it? And really kind of seeing both sides of an argument and knowing that there are always multiple sides of an argument. Uh, I got married and just about every day, there's examples of, hey, this is clearly what I said. Why aren't you reacting the right way? And they're like, no, 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 this is what I heard. Why did you say it that way, right? And so there's there's always kind of these two, two sides, multiple sides of an argument. And when you start applying it to the concepts of DE&I, um, it's, it's very clear that that is what is missing. So I was once, um, uh, you know, I, I, I consider myself a Facebook warrior, right? So I go on, I'm trying <laughs> to educate the world on Facebook. And um, I, a friend of mine, actually a friend of my wife's, uh, she sent me a message and said, hey, I just made this post and my uncle responded and I don't know how to handle him. Would you mind? Would you mind engaging with him? Like, what? A, what an interesting thing! Like, I never caught like the bat signal going up and say, "Hey, here's an opportunity <laughs> to go and debate with somebody on Facebook." And so, so I go and I read the post, and and the the, the she's a she's a teacher in uh, I want to say D.C. area, Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. area, and she posted something and. Her uncle was like, "Hold up! Systemic racism is a figment of your imagination," and and that was she's like, "How do I handle that?" And so 
my first reaction was to go in and prove exactly how wrong he was using facts and data and reasoning and just put him in his place. Like that's what what I I wanted to win. I wanted to fight him and win. And I'm like, okay, hold on, Eric, two sides to every argument. What is it that he's seeing that you're not? And I had to put myself in a really uncomfortable place of vulnerability and trying to learn something from this guy who's obviously offended me and frustrated me. And so the only thing I responded was, what do you hear when you hear the phrase systemic racism? And he went and he's like, I'm glad you asked. He was, he was still angry. And he's like, I hear that you're saying that the United States entire entirety is, is racist and everyone in it is racist. And if we say that we're not racist and then all white people are racist, if we say that we're not racist, that's proof that we're racist. And I'm like, oh. I, I, I hear that. And he's like, yeah. And you're saying that systemic racism is saying that, that black people cannot be successful. And I'm like, whoa, hold on. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That is not what I mean when I say systemic racism. And honestly, if that were my definition, I'd probably say it's a figment of your imagination too. And so because I opened up to the possibility that someone else had something meaningful to say, even though I didn't want to, um, (laughs) I actually learned something. And so we actually got to a place where he calmed a lot because he got to vent out his frustration and he got to say it out loud. And he, he knows that I heard him. And so I said, okay, I hear you. And I, that's not what I think it means. And he's like, oh, well, what do you, what do you think it means? And then he got curious. And so I explained, I'm like, well, it's essentially there's, there's, you know, systems. And when systems break down, we call it systemic dysfunction. And if the systemic dysfunction is around race, we call it systemic racism. If the dysfunctions around age, we call it systemic ageism. And there's all different kinds of systemic dysfunction. And when we acknowledge that there is some dysfunction, we can start to diagnose the problem and go forth and try to correct it. I mean, imagine, you know, you go to your doctor and you say, hey, doctor, my elbow hurts. And your doctor says, well, just stop talking about it. Stop thinking about it. That's not not what a doctor would do. The doctor would say, okay, let's diagnose the problem. But first we have to acknowledge that there is a problem. And he's like, oh, I, I wanted to be offended by what you said, but I think I can pretty much agree with that. And, and that's the power of, of understanding these kind of brain science principles in the context of the DE&I conversation. So now I have to, <laughs> the thing that popped in my head, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate just for a second. So do mm-hmm. you think that that same thing would work if we tried to actually engage more with those that like to shoot down critical race theory, even though they don't actually know what it is. <laughs> because uh, I, as I hear you, I'm like, this sounds like critical race theory conversation. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And um, so I am going to say something, but I don't want you to take it as a 100% proof that it works, Right. but it does work. And I, and I have employed it on uh, at least five different occasions. Um, I'm doing a lot of work right now in with this teen center called the Launchpad Teen Center in Prescott, Arizona. And there are a lot of people who are uh, up in this is kind of northern Arizona, central northern Arizona area, afraid of, of critical race theory and afraid that teachers are, are indoctrinating kids with critical race theory, even though no teachers are teaching critical race theory um, because no one really knows 
what it is <laughs> because it's not something that's being taught all the time. Right. right? And so and so I've actually engaged with people about critical race theory and listened to what they and I asked them, you know, how do you define critical race theory? And uh, one gentleman said, well, it's the idea that white people are bad, white people are evil, and that white people should be erased from the earth. And I'm like, whoa, no, that is not at all. No, 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 what, no, 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 no. What, what that is about. It's not at all what I'm talking about. And if that's where you think I'm coming from, I just want you to know very clearly, 100% no. Right. And then he's like, yeah, but, and he, he kind of, he still, he still felt that, that kind of fear, anger kind of mix going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But here's some evidence to prove that I'm right. Here's some evidence and kind of gives evidence. And I'm like, okay, I hear you. But as someone who discusses um, systemic racism and privilege and bias, to tens of thousands of people around the world. Let me be very clear. That is not my motivation. And that is nowhere near my motivation. No. And he said, okay, so what are so what is it? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm I'm glad you asked, right? So we kind of start going right. into it. Like, well, if there are societal problems, the idea that society fixes societies. It's a societal problem, right? All right. And so we go through and we're critiquing, right? It's not saying that the race is being critiqued, but it's just kind of talking about that. It's, it's a it's an old thing from the it's come from the 70s and it's evolved over time, but it's not what you think it is. And no. it's also not as nefarious as you think it is. And so it, I, I've seen it happen a few times where the shoulders come down, the veins in the neck stop popping out, and, <laughs> and people get curious. Uh, right. But what I found is uh, counterproductively or counterintuitively, we have to give them the platform in, in, the, in this context. What I found most effective is giving them the platform to vent. Right. And try to understand where they're, where they're coming from, what unique experiences or insights they may have, mm-hmm. and then speak to that instead of trying to prove that they're wrong from the outset. Because honestly, I mean, if you ever got in an argument with somebody and you kind of beat them over the head with facts and figures and data, and they're just like kind of, you know, beat up and bloody, they're like, oh, thank you so much for making me feel like a fool. Now I'm going to come to your side. Like that's the, that is right. not how people argue, right? No. So, so what I found it's actually more effective to give people a little space to express what might be underneath. And then, mm-hmm. and then, address the conversation there. The interesting thing about that is um, at the time we're recording earlier this week was um, MLK Day. And mm-hmm. one of the things that um, we shared with clients as well as was part of a conversation inside our community was a video that was kind of laying out the differences and similarities and need for both between, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Mm, And the fact that these were obviously two very different perspectives as far as how they processed information and how they approached things, how there was a point to where they saw some value in what the other person did. And yet there was, to an extent, there's a bit of a need for both. Mm -hmm. And I tend to be somebody that, you know, in the DEI space, I I'm I'm not the one to beat you over the head 
with the facts necessarily, <laughs> but I know that there are there are definitely spaces and in, in times and topics where you do need to be able to back things up with yes. concrete numbers and facts. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I've found that for me, the space where I can have the dialogue and remind people that I am not here to tell you as a human that you are wrong. I am here mm-hmm. to remind you that there are actions that benefit no one. Yes. And being able to kind of do that, as you said, it can sometimes create an an opportunity where the shoulders do come down and there is an opportunity to actually have productive dialogue Mm -hmm. to reconsider what you have decided is your normal and therefore Mm -hmm. is the normal for everyone and be able to be opened up to, well, maybe this isn't how this is for everyone. Or maybe what I'm thinking is more coming from a place of defensiveness of my own fear of what does that mean that I'll lose or what does that mean about me as opposed to, you know, it actually being that I am the problem. I am the one that is making this wrong. I Mm. am wrong. And that's where I we don't get there often enough for me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are definitely times, like you mentioned, that you try to really hone in on this space to to leave the dialogue open for everybody to be able to feel like they can contribute and be a part of it. And then there are some times where, yes, you are just frustrated and you're hurt and you're offended. And it's like, what the happened? (laughs) And this is where... I'm curious, again, where the brain science piece can come in to help with the healing, because Mm -hmm. the reality of it is, is that when you do get defensive, when your shoulders do go up, we, Mm -hmm. you know, in coaching, a lot of times we call them, you know, those are your chandelier earrings. They (laughs) they go all the way up. And, you know, the, the dialogue really comes from a place of I can't listen to anything that you're saying because I simply need to have my armor up and Mm -hmm. I need to defend myself. And that none of that helps healing. And it all comes from a place of you needing to be healed somewhere, everybody involved. And so I'm curious how that's intersecting because that defensiveness, that's something that is unhealed. Right. Right. And, And that's, that is the number one way to stop a conversation is, is that defensiveness. Um, I, I, so I'm, I'm a parent, I have three kids. And, uh, when my first child was born, my mom got me this, uh, it was, you know, 13 years, it was a DVD workbook. Um, you know, what, you remember, you remember what a DVD is? I was going to say, I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> and so it was, it was a uh, baby sign language. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you know, but, uh, before babies, before their vocal cords are formed and they can speak very clearly, they're, they're able to kind of use gross motors, motor functions and kind of express themselves using sign language. Mm-hmm. And the way in which to teach a child sign language is you have to, you know, show them the thing like the milk or whatever. And then you do the hand signal for milk or whatever every time. And they say that the best time to introduce a sign to a child is when their eyes are focused on you in a very specific way, they are open to learning. And, and that is a concept that has stuck with me ever since, is that there are times when people are open to learning, and there's a bunch of times when they're not. 
And if we're trying to teach people or inform people when they are not open to learning, we're wasting our time and we're wasting our energy and we're likely going to end up in some kind of disagreement. And I think that's the whole concept of understanding the brain science is that when people are defensive or, or you know, we, we call it, the, we call it the, the fight or flight response, there's actually a physiological response happening in their bodies because of protecting ourselves from, you know, saber-toothed tigers, right? Back when we were cavewomen and cavemen, right? But we have this entire physiological response in, in which our brain will actually divert blood from the frontal lobe and our language center of our brain out to our extremities. We actually have less blood oxygen available in our brain, in the, in the prefrontal cortex, where uh, our, our higher level thinking exists, our creative thinking exists. Because we feel defensive. Someone has said something and it, it triggers something and our brain says, whoa, we're in danger here and shuts down those the, the human processing. And so at that point, and you're trying to, if you're trying to explain to someone the complexities of privilege or the complexities of racism or the complexities of homophobia, they are not in a place to learn no. and they're not going to be there. And so when you understand the signs and their physiological symptoms, people's skin will flush. We'll see people's hands get jittery. Uh, they start stumbling on their words when they typically don't. They'll start talking faster or slower or louder. They'll clench their fists. They'll jitter their legs. They'll walk out of the room. Like all these physiological signs and symptoms indicate to us, if we're open to seeing them, that that person is defensive. They are not open to learning. And so our chief responsibility, if we are still of, of sound mind and body, is to calm them down. And once we calm them down, we'll notice their focus will change. Their eyes will look at us in that certain way and we say, oh, they're open to learning now. And, and while it is, it is an exercise sometimes in patience, in uh, always being the one who has to take the step forward first or extend the olive branch first, which it's that's that's the 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 paradox of of the enlightened, right? Is is the more enlightened we are, the more likely we are to be the one who is the bigger person in a conversation. And unfortunately, fortunately, that's just that's just the way it is. So understanding the brain science really gives you the tools necessary to keep down your own defensiveness, recognize their defensiveness, and then use whatever methods are appropriate in that moment to help diffuse that. Shaping your company culture and getting closer to the goals that matter most to you. How is it that you can do that? Well, without your values, knowing what they are and how well aligned they are, you just can't. And you know that you can't talk around topics like DEI. We have to use the language to call it what it is, no matter how palatable or unpalatable it might be. And in order to get to that point where you're aligned with what matters to you and why, knowing your values, that's what gets you there. Leading through your values means that you are explicit about what you support and how your values align with it. Every person you hire, every business you buy from, every action you take brings you closer to or farther away. So in order to get some support on getting clear on your values and how to implement that into your imperfect allyship, you can learn more today at pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit so that you can sign up for the Implicit to Explicit Masterclass with Indy and I. We can support you in working on those values.
People think they know what to expect, but they haven't met you yet. Bi-weekly, India Jackson, co-founder of Pause on the Play, has conversations exploring branding and visibility. Own your values and amplify your influence by giving the Flaunt Your Fire podcast a follow today. As you bring up kind of being that person to figure mm-hmm. out, okay, this has not gone in a direction that is going to be fruitful for anyone. So mm-hmm. what can I do next? I feel like that's kind of triggering that empathy yes. in the person that, you know, as as you mentioned, is is more enlightened in this particular moment in this subject matter. And it's not always easy to step into that space. And so I wonder where, again, that brain science not only shows up for as you mentioned, the the recognizing that the person that you're in conversation with has maybe hit that point again, that they are willing to be in this conversation and, and possibly are open and, and, and malleable to a different point of view. But what now happens for that person that in their brain, they're trying to navigate their own feelings and have a teachable moment because mm. using a, a, you know, being a parent, like there's this point where you're like, I want to be a better parent. I'm trying to help you be a better kid, but you know what? Right now I'm just frustrated. <laughs> I'm just frustrated. And that's, and that's real. Right. And I think, um, as I said earlier, like I'm going to, I'm going to offer some things, but they're not universal going to work. Like this is not an easy thing to do, right? These right. are not easy conversations. And, you know, I, I've literally written a book on, on, on these, on these, I've got 22 principles in brain science. It's called the cure for stupidity using brain science <laughs> to explain irrational behavior. And so I, I've literally written the book on this, but right. these are natural human things. And I struggle with them every single day, every right. day. And I mean, I'll, I'll give you some examples of when I'm very successful at them, but I've got just as many, if not more examples of when I've failed at it, right? Nice. It's it's not about doing it, like getting it and doing it perfectly. It's about getting better. And if right. we can get better at it, whether it's, you know, having more patience, ex- expressing more empathy, understanding people better, lifting people up, if we can get better at that as a society, then we've done the right thing. And, and I think a lot of times people, they want to get to, okay, is it going to work or not work? And yeah. there's this, this concept called uh, probabilistic thinking versus absolute thinking. And so absolute thinking is this, this idea that if the intervention I'm going to employ works 100% of the time or absolutely works, I will do it. And if it doesn't work 100% of the time, I will not do it. It's not worth my time. And so we kind of put these things in that binary. Is it going to work or not? But what we need to employ is something called probabilistic thinking, meaning if the intervention we're going to apply improves the probability of the desired outcome, it is worth doing it. And, and that just shift in thinking allows us to do a lot more uh, ex- exploration of the world around us. So if trying to remain calm and asking questions of the other person improves the likelihood of the desired outcome, then why not do it? It won't work 100% of the time. We're not going to be able to stay calm 100% of the time. But if we can improve that probability, it is absolutely worth trying. And it's it's tough, right? It's tough because sometimes we just want them to know how wrong they are. We just want them to know how right we are. And 
one of the brain science principles that is really important in that context is, is actually the first one. It's called the illusion of certainty. And so the illusion of certainty is, is our brain actually projecting to us that we are right. Our brains love to project certainty, even if there is none. And so if we feel remotely close to an answer, our brains will lock in and say, I know the answer. Or if our brains are predicting what's going to happen or going to come in the future, like I see a, uh, a black dog on a, on a leash with spikes on its collar and its ears are pointed up, I, my brain may predict that that dog is a dangerous dog. And so my brain will lock in, okay, I'm going to assume that's a dangerous dog. And now I'm going I'm to believe that's a dangerous dog. Now I know that's a dangerous dog. And that's what the illusion of certainty does. We take our, these ideas, turn them into beliefs, turn them into feelings, and they get bigger and bigger until we, we are certain about them. And so I will avoid that dog, right? And that's the illusion of certainty. It's, it's an illusion. A lot of times what we think is going to happen or what we think we know, we may not know. It may not be true, may not be accurate. And so that's if that's one of those principles. If we can learn that we are not always right, well, we're not always wrong either. But if we're not always right, we can hold open the possibility that there is something out there for us to learn. Well, and I think there's that space sometimes of like, there's also the possibility of if there's two people in this discussion, both of you can be right somewhere and wrong somewhere. Yes. And it and again, that binary of it needs to be right or wrong. And that's where I'm like, there is gray area to be able mm -hmm. to understand that it's not about, it It has to be any one thing. And right. that's why, like when I talk about imperfect allyship, you don't assume that if you're an ally, everything that you're going to say or do is going to be right. Yes. You also don't assume that as an ally, there's nowhere for you to learn mm -hmm. and that you can never be wrong because the reality is, is that we all have learning and unlearning to do, no matter how much we have already done, yes. no matter how much you have already experienced or learned or conditioned yourself to navigate through, there's always something. And there's always some something that is going to prompt you to respond in a way that you're like, I really could have done that differently, but I'm already mm -hmm. here now. So <laughs> I'm either going to, I'm going to commit or I'm going to figure out how to, how to just, you know, make this work better from where I am. And mm -hmm. it's such a necessity to remind yourself that being wrong is not, it's not always a negative thing. Right, right. Uh, that's actually one of the most important things that we can learn is how to acknowledge when we're wrong. There's, or, or that we don't know something or that we're sorry that we've made a mistake. Um, there, there's, there's a, a quote in my book, which is probably one of my, one of my uh, most re-shared re quotes is the only things in life we can learn are things that we don't yet know. Mm -hmm. Meaning that everything we learn we have to first not know it. The only things in life we can learn are things we don't yet know. And the problem is we end up projecting all the time that we know everything or we have no room yes. to grow or that we're right all the time. It's like, no, no, no. We have to first acknowledge there's something for me to learn here. And if you go throughout your day and you're not learning something that there's something wrong with the way you're seeing the world. Right. Or if you make a mistake, people say, oh, I don't want to engage in this DEI stuff because I don't want to engage in this conversation because like, what if I make a mistake? Mm 
And my my response to them is if. What do you mean if you make – you're going to make a mistake. Right? Right. Tell me one day you've gone through your life and you didn't make a mistake. No. Right. The important thing is how are you going to respond when you make a mistake? Right. Right. Because that's that's how we move forward. I make a right. joke that I've been telling my entire life and someone says, whoa, that joke is pretty offensive. And I'm like, no, you're just too sensitive. Or, or I can say, I'm sorry. I never thought about it that way. Okay, help me understand. Oh, right. thank you. And then I choose to never tell that joke again, right? That's that's the growth that's necessary. But the ego, the protectivism, the defensive part of me is going to say, no, 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 you're just too sensitive. That's not what I meant. Right. But it doesn't matter what you meant. Intent is not required for offensive behavior. Racist no. intent is not required for racist behavior. When you understand those principles, it's like, oh, there might be a lot more in this world for me to learn. Well, and what you said, I think that a lot of people might be unaware of the gift that is being given to you in a situation where Mm -hmm. you do intentionally or unintentionally offend someone and they are then willing to still be in conversation with you. Right. Because that opportunity of, you know, if if they choose to play a part in in that dialogue or the educating of you in that moment, which they don't have to. Right. And they say, hey, let me let me let you know where that landed for me. That's a gift because they could have just said, you know what, that that was offensive. I am not going to now do the labor to tell you why, because I'm already hurt and I'm I can't do anymore. But I really need you to think about doing that again. Please Mm -hmm. don't. And. When there's an opportunity to be in conversation, and, and and again, this person does not owe you that, but when they are choosing to give you that, I need you to understand how much of a gift that is. That's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And And when people are willing to be vulnerable enough or they trust you enough to go to that space, the response should be, thank you. Right. Right. You just taught me something. You helped me see something I couldn't see before. That is, that is true. I love that you said it's truly a gift. It, it was especially because, I mean, if we're being honest about it, people like you and I, this is part of what we get paid for to educate right. people. Right. So right. you you uh, buy them dinner. <laughs> they just gave you a free <laughs> lesson. Just saying. <laughs> so as we begin to wrap, what I'm curious about is obviously, which is why I love organic conversation. We went into a number of different places and I think there's so much here to really be explored and just kind of digging a little deeper in it for how you are navigating in conversations with others, even the conversations you have in your head. Like, are you being defensive with yourself? Because we do that to our, like, I I didn't do that. I didn't mean, you know, and it's like, (laughs) okay, it's it's okay. Like, I don't know who you're defending yourself to, but we, like we do because, because we feel bad. We feel guilt. We feel shame. Judge ourselves. Yep. Right. And so with all of these kind of examples that we've given, which I'm really glad that we've had con concrete examples and, some things that people can consider as ways that maybe things could be done differently in conversation. If there is one action or one concept or, or thought process or action process Mm -hmm. that you would like the listeners to take and to go out and to actually, you know, employ this somewhere in their life, what would you like that to be? So I have a concept uh, that, that I use called radical curiosity. 
And, and the kind of the concept behind it is really deconstructing that illusion of certainty. So instead of I know everything, what if you went through the world saying, what do I have to learn in this situation? Like, what is there for me? What don't I know here? Um, and it, it's, it's a unique concept, but let me, let me give you a great way to express it. Uh, and this is something that I've, I've tried to employ, I try on a daily basis. I probably do it a, a few times a week, but whenever I'm in some kind of disagreement, whether it's with a family member, my kids, my spouse, or some random person on Facebook or a stranger, right? I find myself in some kind of disagreement, debate, whatever, I, I ask them this question. And this question actually, it helps center me into empathy and in radical curiosity. And so what I ask them, I say, why are you so passionate about your position? And, and if I could have the listeners employ any tool, it would be today, ask somebody that question, like write it down now, put on a post-it note on your monitor, but ask somebody this question today, why are you so passionate about your position? And, and that question is intentionally crafted for a couple of things. So one, we acknowledge that they have a position and that position is different than my position, right? So they have a unique position. So we're acknowledging that. Two, we're acknowledging that they're passionate. Now, passion is associated with strong emotion, but more importantly, it's positively charged, strong emotion. So we're we're saying, you know, I, I get that you feel strongly about this and you have good, strong feelings about this. Now, we, we could say it differently. We could say, you know, why are you so obsessed with getting your way, which essentially is the same thing, but it doesn't have the same ring to it, right? People right. will react differently. But then we're saying, why? Like, why are you so passionate? And so what we're not saying is prove to me why you're right. Tell me all the data and the information and the facts that prove that you're right. What we're actually trying to do is we're trying to get underneath the, the argument. Like, what is the motivator behind the argument? And when you ask that question, you get all kinds of really more emotion-based or experience-based things. Like a, a very benign example, um, I, I was once rear-ended on the freeway and someone says, hey, how should we get, you know, from the office to the airport? I'm like, oh, we got to take, you know, 7th Street all the way down and cut over here. I'm like, whoa, why not just take the freeway? And I'm like, well, because it's stupid and da 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 and But someone says, well, why are you so passionate about your position? And I think about it and say, well, actually, I was once rear-ended and someone was texting and driving. I, I don't trust people on the freeway, right? So then you're going to get what's underneath the argument, which is much more of a human process. Um, that, that did happen. I did actually get rear-ended on the freeway, but I'm not actually afraid of driving on the freeway. Uh, but, but that question, that question can fundamentally shift the way you show up in conversation and it will change the way that they show up in conversation because they're going to feel your curiosity. They're going to feel your empathy and they're going to react differently than if you try to tell them that they're wrong. So if, any, if you could do one thing is practice radical curiosity, see what is there in the world for you to learn and ask this question today and try to do it every day. Why are you so passionate about your position? I love this. And I I wrote the question down for myself because <laughs> I, I think it's a really good question. And one of the things that I learned um, in um, taking my coaching training was the five whys and just kind mm -hmm. of constantly peeling back that onion. Yes. But when you're in conversation with someone else, um, 
they typically don't want you picking at their brain that way, especially <laughs> when they haven't given you permission. And so right. I think that this is a question that can begin to kind of go there mm-hmm. in a, a a softer way, in a more um, aware way, being that, you know, we're in this conversation in this moment. This is not a therapy or a coaching session. We're simply having dialogue. And I want you to think, but I don't want you to think that I'm psychoanalyzing you either. Right. <laughs> So I think it's a really, really great question. And I like the concept of even just asking yourself if, if mm-hmm. you know, you're just like, I have to do it this way. It's like, do I? Mm-hmm. Why, why mm-hmm. am I so passionate about this particular position in this moment? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly love it. it. Love it. Love it. Oh, my gosh. First of all, I might have to have you back because I'm like, this could go on for like another hour. <laughs> this would be really <laughs> easy. So... Of course, Eric, I'm so excited that we got to have this conversation and it brought up so much. And I want the listeners to know where they can find you and how they can learn more. Absolutely. So you can find me at Eric M. Bailey, M as in Michael, ericmbailey.com. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter and all the things. Um, but yeah, feel free to reach out to me. And and a lot of times uh, folks will want to have conversations about uh, you know, DEI in a new way, and so my my product that is is being uh, uh, used a lot right now is called Holy Shift. Make sure you enunciate. Uh, completely <laughs> changing the conversation, right? And and I think that there there are a lot of conversations out there, and they're kind of doing the same thing. And we've been doing it for the last what fifty years. Um, in the same way. And a lot of people aren't getting the results. They're just checking boxes. And I think you, you do work in the same way. It's like, let's have a different kind of conversation so that it's more productive. And, and my spin on it is let's leverage brain science. So all of your analytical people, they're going to get it because we're backing everything up with science and data and facts and research. But then also all of the emotion-based people are going to get it because we're talking about real life stories and impacts and how things actually work. Um, and, and, and when you get an entire group of people, white folks, black folks, brown folks, all kinds of folks, all starting at different places, taking a step forward in the same direction, that's powerful. And, and that's, that's really what our aim is when we do this work is not to, not to tell anyone that they're wrong or scapegoat anybody, but get everyone to see what we're talking about in the same way and take one step forward. So uh, yeah, please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or, or, or you want to reach out for any other reason, uh, ericmbailey.com. And yeah, I would love to come back. Please, please, we can come back a few more times. Yes, I'm here for it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Everything will be in the article, aka our show notes on the website. Be sure to learn more about Eric, what he does. Go buy his book, Pay This Black Man. And thank you. So just in case, as you were listening, you missed out on that question, I'm going to repeat it one more time because I think it's a valuable question to prompt yourself with as well as something that you can utilize in communication and conversation while you're connecting with others. Why are you so passionate about your position? That and that prompting for radical curiosity, I think is such an important thing to remember because Everything that we are doing that is a part of our imperfect allyship in our lives, in our work, everywhere, 
It requires us to be curious about what it is that we don't yet know or don't yet know in this particular way. Being open in that way, being willing to be vulnerable in that way, that is where the magic happens. It's everything said, Eric's 100% correct about that. And I always love an opportunity to have this type of conversation with someone else that's in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, because we're all working toward common goals. We all want things to be better. We want things to be more equitable. And we all are doing this in our own way, because there's a million different ways that are going to connect differently with millions of different people. So each and every one of us can contribute to getting closer to that goal just a little bit sooner. And so continuing to amplify and connect and to share with you people that are doing this in the way that works for them and continues to get results, I'm here for it. And this is what I ask you to always just be open to. And again, considering how this can be another tool in your tool tool belt for your imperfect allyship. So being here, being able to take in this conversation and being able to figure out what it is that you can pull from this that's going to support you in better navigating your everyday exchanges. I'm so glad that you were able to be here and to take this in. Thank you. I always know that I am in good hands when you are here with me shoulder to shoulder, continuing to get people to drop the veil while they challenge their thoughts, feelings, and actions. We can do this together. So until the next time, and I know you'll be here next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person, or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take, and then sharing this information across your team explicitly This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?